Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We're certainly grateful for all of our listeners and this wonderful community of gardeners we're fortunate to be able to serve. This is part two of a two-part episode we're bringing you on landscape trees. If you didn't listen to part one, I recommend stopping now and going and listening to that episode first before jumping into this one. If you've already listened to part one and are back for part two, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you enjoyed it and are looking forward to getting into pruning, and for most of this episode, tree problems and solutions. Emma also recorded a few interesting special segments on wood chips, white oak, and frost cracking. I did want to thank everyone who has completed our listener survey. There's still time to do that if you haven't already. It shouldn't take too long and will help us understand the impact of the podcast and improve it to better meet your needs. As a reminder, everyone who fills it out will be entered in a giveaway for a pair of Felco hand pruners. Find the link to the survey in the show notes, and thanks! Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnett's Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension, joined by horticulturist and UNH Extension Field Specialist Emma Erler, as well as Greg Jordan, Rockingham County's Natural Resources Specialist, semantically referred to as the Rockingham County Forester. As we launch back into my conversation with Emma and Greg, I'll remind you that we left off part one of this episode with a discussion about watering and fertilizing trees. At the end of the episode, Greg and Emma were actually making a few interesting points about why you might not want to fertilize trees in some situations, like if you want to manage the size of a tree or if your tree is battling a pest like hemlock woolly adelgid, an invasive forest insect pest. Part two picks up with me transitioning the conversation from that to pruning. From the outset with planting trees, that's where you're more thinking about training trees to to, to whatever extent you can to have the the growth habit and you know shape that that you're looking for um but i I guess at a basic level greg how do you think about the purpose of pruning trees uh it is it something that you need to do is it something that maybe you shouldn't do like when should homeowners be considering doing pruning when should they maybe be passing on and even though they're tempted to when you're planting a tree i don't really think that's the time to prune it those first year that first year or two um like you said the you know a bald and burlap tree can lose 80 to 90 percent of its roots in the whole transplanting and it, it needs all that leaf surface all that leaf area to make food so it can sort of recover and so immediate pruning is it, that's not the time to be pruning um however I think the time to really get pruning trees is early in their in their life, you know, in the first 10 years. That's the time, I think, to make a lot of the decisions on pruning trees. It's ideal to prune branches when they're very small. Um, you know, when you make a wound on a tree, um, we like to say that um, trees don't heal, they seal. And once you make a wound on a tree, it never goes away. It's not like us that maybe we get a small cut in our finger and it heals. What the trees do is they compartmentalize those those wounds. They never go away, and so it's ideal if you're going to be pruning trees, make those decisions early in the tree's life so they have small wounds that, that heal over or seal over very quickly and, and very full, and you don't have much chance of rot in that pocket. So what happens is a lot of people plant trees, and then they forget about them 
Um, the time to prune the trees is, is again, when they're young. Um, if you can make some decisions early in the life of the tree, especially about its form, uh, it can be a stronger tree. It's going to be less prone to storm damage, and it's probably going to have a longer life. And so that first decade is the time to be pruning trees. Emma, can you expand on that, I guess, in terms of uh, selecting and pruning for form? You know, what, what, are, what is your strategy looking at trees? What do you, how do you want it to grow, and what are some of the ways you might prune to prevent it from growing in other ways? I, I guess one example that comes to mind for me are trees that end up growing with multiple trunks. No matter what, before you start pruning a tree, you should know a little bit about what its natural growth habit should be. Because uh, some trees actually do naturally grow with two or three or four trunks, or uh, they're produced in the nursery to grow with that habit. So it would be advisable to leave it that way. Um, an example I'm thinking of right now is river birch. A lot of times, both in the wild and in cultivation, river birch will have two or, or three or more stems. And when you purchase that plant, it's likely it's going to come with multiple stems. Uh, and that's that's totally fine, right? That's normal, and you can allow the plant to grow in that way. But if you're growing something like an oak, having multiple stems for that plant is not the norm, nor is that the, the horticultural standard. So you might find, and you, you certainly will, if you're out in the woods, you'll find oaks with multiple stems. Um, but that's probably because something stressful happened to that tree earlier in its life. Uh, something damaged the, the uh, main growing point of the stem, um, that central leader, and it may have, have split or forked at some point. Uh, or in some cases, you might have had a couple of seeds germinate in roughly the same spot, and you have a couple of trees that have come to maturity right next to each other. In general, though, unless you have a tree that typically grows with this multi-stemmed habit, you're going to be better off with just a single trunk. Because when you have multiples, uh, the tree tends to be a little bit more prone to splitting out or storm damage. So for example, if you have a tree that has one main trunk and then let's say, I don't know, five or six feet off the ground, it splits into two trunks or three trunks. As those trunks continue to grow, they're going to put more and more pressure against each other. And over time, it becomes more and more likely that one of those trunks is going to fail um, in a storm or just from the pressure of those two growing right next to each other. Um, and eventually, typically what happens is one of those breaks out. And when that happens, when you have a large tree that had multiple leaders and one of them falls out of the tree, that's usually kind of the, the kiss of death for that plant overall. You know, the, the remaining section of it may live for, you know, some years yet, maybe even a decade, but that tree is just on a long, slow decline after that happens. So with your young tree, you know, say this is a maple or this is an oak, or beech or what have you making sure that it just has one main stem going growing upwards is going to be critical um this isn't this doesn't always happen naturally um the way trees are pruned in the nursery is often to have them look as full as possible so that you, when you put it into your landscape you have this miniature looking adult tree 
but it's probably going to be necessary to thin out that canopy. It's probably going to be necessary to either remove one of those competing stems or to shorten the length of one or two competing branches that are all trying to grow upright and be the main trunk. Uh, there's a lot that goes into to pruning correctly. And it's not that it's, it's difficult. Um, it just takes a little bit of understanding of how trees grow and respond to pruning cuts so that it's, it's not a surprise when a tree responds to the cut that you've made. Greg, I mean, a couple situations people are often running into that are prompting them to want to prune their tree is growing too close to the house or too close to power lines. So obviously, if you could go back in time, you might plant those trees differently if you were actually the one who planted them. But kind of going back to present day, you've got the this tree that's too close to the house or a branch that's growing too close to the house or trees competing with the power lines where you know, one one bad storm and you've got a real problem. How do you advise people in those situations? That's a tough one because people often love those trees. But like you said, if the decision wasn't made when it was young to do that pruning, and then you really have not a lot of choices at that point, Nate. Um, you know, if it's trees into the power lines, the utility company, isn't there isn't a lot they can do. They can try to prune around it, but often that sort of disfigures the tree and it you know, it doesn't get to grow in its natural form. Um, so I advise people to, to make judicious pruning cuts if they need to. Um, it's not ideal for the tree, and most situations that arborists walk into are not the ideal situations. And so you have to walk in and you have to look at the overall structure of the tree and you have to think about, you know, can the tree tolerate this pruning cut? And, and most of the time they can. It may not seal the wound as as thoroughly as you like or as quickly as you'd like, and you will end up with rotten net stem. But there are really few choices at that point other than to make the decision to, to prune the tree or remove the tree if that's the best scenario and to replant with a species that's just more appropriate for the site. Emma, if, if you do have to prune, especially some of these more severe cuts um, where you are cutting a pretty significant branch, Ideally, you would have done that back when it was small, but now you have to do it when it was big. Is there a time of year to, to do that and any techniques to reduce stress as much as possible? Well, the ideal when you're pruning really any deciduous tree, so anything that's going to lose its leaves in the winter months, is to prune in the late dormant season. So that means late winter, early spring probably somewhere from February through the end of March or early April, maybe even into the end of April. Uh, the ideal is before that, that tree's buds break, so before you start seeing leaf expansion on that plant. There are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, one is that uh, trees in the, this uh, time period uh, are going to be less susceptible to pathogens. So if there is a, a particular... Uh, disease that spread uh, through wounds, you're going to be less likely to spread that disease through pruning when the disease isn't active. Uh, a good example, um, although it might be beyond the scope of, of this particular talk, uh, is if you have a tree that's in the rose family. So this is going to be things like, like apples or pears or crab apples that are really susceptible to a bacterial disease called fire blight. That disease is spread once the tree is actively growing, uh, and it's actually spread uh, oftentimes um, from flower to flower uh, by 
uh, bees that are visiting the plant. But that bacterium is not going to be active if you're pruning in March, let's say. So you're probably not going to be spreading it then. Another reason to prune that time of year is that that wound is going to be open for the shortest amount of time possible. Now, granted, if this is a very large pruning cut, it might be open forever. A tree may never totally seal that over. But if it's a smaller cut, as soon as we get into the spring, the tree is going to start rapidly growing again. It's going to be expanding buds. Uh, It's going to be the um, stems are going to be lengthening. Branches are going to be lengthening. So you're going to start getting active sealing of that wound right away in the spring. Uh, You don't always get a choice, though, of when your tree is going to get pruned if, say, you have to have an arborist come in. So you're not going to necessarily be able to schedule an arborist to come at the exact ideal time in in March or, let's say, April. Um, And that's that's okay for the majority of species, particularly native species that are super cold hardy. Um, They're going to be fine if you prune in the summer or in the fall or in the winter. But if you have a species that is a little bit more cold sensitive, say it's it's not native or it's native to southeastern United States, it might be a bit more prone to cold injury, particularly at the site of the pruning cut or pruning um, wound. So you wouldn't want to prune it in the fall, right before you're going into winter, because uh, you might get more dieback at that wound site as the tree starts to um, have some active growth or cell division at that site, trying to seal it over. Um, You see this in fruit trees quite a bit if these plants are pruned in the fall or early winter. Some people might be hearing you guys talk about wounds and wondering about the the wound paint that you can actually purchase and and apply to, to these cuts. There are various products out there and they've been used for a long time. What's your take on on these products and whether they can actually be helpful or or whether there might be unintended consequences maybe steering you away from them? Nate, I'm old enough to remember when they were commonly used. I remember my dad using uh, some wound dressings when he was pruning trees when I was a kid. And it was kind of a thick tar-like wound dressing. Um, There's also paints. Uh, There are some water-based ones too as well. And generally, they're just not needed. Um. You know, like we've talked about, trees are really good at sealing off wounds, compartmentalizing those physically and also chemically. And it's sort of been shown that using these wound dressings, it may look nice aesthetically. Maybe it looks better to some people, but it may actually inhibit the tree's ability to to seal that wound off. Um, and so I typically tell people avoid those really at all costs. I can think of only one exception. And as we, we sort of watch with, you know, our breath held as uh, an, a non-native fungus, possibly something called oak wilt. We're not really sure if it's native or not, but there is a, a fungus that infects oaks that's sort of on approaching New Hampshire. And if and when that gets here um, and you need to prune an oak in the summer, um, we may recommend using a wound dressing at that point because that fungus is spread partly um, by bark beetles. And so if there's a wound... They may come to that wound, they'll, they'll recognize that tree's been wounded, and they may spread the fungal spores around. And that's really the only time that I can think of um, that I would recommend using a wound dressing. And mostly I'd try to get people not to prune their oaks in the summer. 
Yeah, I think where the wound dressing thing comes in is that we think, you know, if if we were to get hurt, right, that it makes sense most times to to bandage that wound that, you know, we think like, oh, well, yeah, we should cover it because that's going to be important for the healing process. Uh, but trees are really different and they, they really don't need that. And like Greg said, it could actually inhibit the, the sealing process. So I never recommend using those products. Um, or really anything else from home either. I've had people ask me about wrapping wounds with cloth or in one case actually putting like a, a face mask or bandana around a wound. Uh, and I, I get it. Like it's easy to get real attached to trees and maybe think of them, you know, kind of like friends or like people. Um, but they, they don't need that particular treatment. I brought this up earlier. Um, the The person I talked to a few days ago who had topped their trees um, out of concern for the the swaying in the wind. Um, topping trees is actually pretty common as as a as a practice for for various reasons. But a lot of times, I I hear it's something that is discouraged at the same time. Um, but trees often grow taller uh, than people want them to grow. Um, that that could be a fruit tree that you don't want to grow too tall that you can't harvest it easily or it could be a, a tree that's growing up uh, into the power lines or or i mean whatever the the case is tree topping is is pretty common what what would you say about that and um you know the consequences of it potentially and whether there might be some situations where may, maybe it is okay well i'd probably say uh no <laughs> um it's just it's just not a proper pruning cut at least for trees and i would defer to emma about maybe in the landscape if if topping or a, i guess a heading cut maybe what it'd be called if it's ever appropriate but with trees it's topping is just like the um you know removing the growing tip of the branch and it sort of can be indiscriminate right proper pruning which you might call a thinning cut is done you know at a branch collar or at a stem um and so topping really isn't that it's just sort of randomly cutting off the top it's like severing the trees it's it's really considered like mutilating the tree to arborists these days you know to to really you know good qualified caring arborists um and the problem what happens is the tree will respond um you know often with a lot of sprouts around those cuts um but again we talked about how trees you know will seal wounds well they seal better at sort of the branch defense zone which is around where the branch collar is where the uh, swelling where the 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 wood from the stem and a wood from a branch kind of come together, sort of like a deck of cards, right? The trees are really good at sealing off wounds there. They're not if you just randomly break off a branch at any point. And so what you end up with is these weakly attached sort of sprouts. They can be sort of like parasitic sprouts. They may use more energy than they produce for the tree. And then you end up with a lot of rot. And so if a situation like a homer who wanted to protect their house, they may have taken some you know structurally sound limbs or branches and then converted them into... Um, you know, weakly attached uh, branches that have rot around them. So, um, and so from my perspective as an arborist, there's really no good use for topping. I understand I've worked with, you know, homeowners who had maybe a beautiful champion tree and they they didn't want to cut the tree down. And so their alternative was topping. And really probably the best decision, although a tough decision would have been to remove the tree and then plant something more appropriate. But it's a tough decision for homeowners to make. I agree with all of that, Greg. And I think one of the the things that comes with topping too, because usually topping's done to control the size of the plant, 
it's getting too tall. But those weakly attached sprouts will often quickly catch up to the height of what the tree was before. You know, it's only going to be a matter of a few years or so before you've got a whole bunch of stems now that are really a hazard, that are just as tall as the tree was originally that you cut. So not advised. Um, Heading cuts, or, or, you know, we'll, we'll call it topping, are useful in the landscape, although not typically on trees. Probably the most tree-like thing I can think of where this would happen, you know, fairly regularly might be something like a willow. If you've been going for a very specific horticultural look or ornamental look, um, and this is this is often called, I believe, um, pollarding, where you're cutting branches back to the same point every single season, and what you end up with is these really bizarre-looking gnarled branches that have these big swollen ends to them that produce new shoots every single season. Not something that, that I would widely recommend. Um, it's really something that only something you're going to do if you have just a, a very specific ornamental aesthetic that you're looking for. And even then you're, you're doing it with, with real care. Um, and the only other time in, in landscaping that heading cuts would come in is if you're shearing a plant. And in general, trees do not need to be sheared. Uh, and, and actually, in, in most cases, shrubs don't need to be sheared either, unless you have extremely formal hedges, let's say of a, a boxwood hedge or something around your house. Nate, if you do need to reduce the height of a tree or, you know, it, it's growing a little bit too wide, there, there are some cuts that you can make. There are things called like a reduction cut. <clears throat> and it is possible to, to shorten the branch or shorten the height by cutting back to a, a bud or another lateral branch that could sort of take over that position for the tree. But again, that's done at a very specific location on the tree, and it's not just an indiscriminate um, cutting off or topping of the tree. So it is possible to reduce the height of a tree. It's just not an easy thing to do, and it takes a lot of skill to do it well. Are you one of the many people who has noticed vertical cracks in the bark of young trees in winter or spring? Winter weather can be tough on trees, particularly ones with thin bark, such as sycamores, maples, cherries, lindens, and apples. These trees tend to be prone to a disorder called frost cracking, that is, the development of vertical cracks in the bark or wood. Frost cracks are often found on trees that are out in the open where sun shines directly on the bark. On sunny days in winter, sunlight can warm the bark and inner wood on the south or west sides of trees. As the sun sets or drops behind clouds, the temperature drops quickly, causing the bark to shrink while the inner wood takes longer to contract. This uneven shrinkage between the bark and inner wood causes the bark to split, along with the wood directly beneath it. Unfortunately, once frost cracks have occurred, there isn't much you can do. Sometimes these cracks seal over and trees are fine, but in other situations, decay fungi and insects may invade and slowly weaken the tree. If you have a damaged tree, the only thing you can really do to prolong its life is by watering during drought. You may also be able to protect newly planted trees with thin bark that don't have any cracks yet by wrapping their trunks with white reflective volgards, something you can find at garden supply stores or catalogs. And you may notice if you visit an orchard that the peach trees 
Young peach trees have white paint on their trunks. It's the same idea. That white color will reflect sunlight and keep that bark from splitting. So for many homeowners, I think like Greg talked about earlier, you plant it and forget it, except when you notice something wrong. And all of a sudden, a tree that you maybe have taken for granted for a long time as a healthy, beautiful tree, all of a sudden you're distressed because it's distressed or or you think it might be. Um, and we get a lot of those panicked calls at Cooperative Extension. Um, and we're not always able to figure out what's going on just from a phone call or, you know, from looking at some pictures, but in, many times we can. And I thought it would be helpful to do some sort of rapid fire going down some of these issues and talking about whether they maybe look worse than they are, whether they're, you know, really posing a, a threat to the life of the tree or to the structural integrity of the tree, or, you know, maybe nothing to be concerned about and talking about some of the nuance and, and how homeowners can just be a little bit more educated when they're, when they're looking at trees in their landscape and kind of deciding whether there's a problem or not. And I actually thought we could we could start by kind of building on a topic that we had already talked about a little bit, or Emma did anyway, with the, the river birch, multiple stems together. In what situations might you be looking at a tree that has those multiple trunks or multiple you know central stems and, and actually be concerned that there might really be a structural integrity issue that that might make that tree a hazard? And what situation might you say, you know what, like this is totally fine? What do you think, Greg? Well, I, when I look at a tree like that, I, I start to assess it, and I look at the the branch attachment and the angle of the attachment. If I see U-shaped branch attachments, then I feel pretty good that those are pretty strong attachments of branches to a trunk. If I see V-shaped branch attachments, like you might see in white pine quite a bit, where two branches come together at a very sharp angle, then I start to get a little bit worried about the, the structural integrity of those trees. And in the forest... That's okay. Like Emma mentioned, you know, that's a situation where you have what's called included bark. So two stems grow together. It's not wood that's joining them, it's bark. And so as the tree grows and the bark can't attach to it, each other, those two branches, it ends up like a wedge and it pushes those apart. Again, in the forest, no problem. When it's, you know, 100-foot pine over someone's house, that angle of branch attachment starts to worry me a little bit. It's tough to predict if and when those are break. They can last for decades upon decades. But when I see those narrow branch attachments, on you know, especially on tall trees like white pine, that's when I get a little bit concerned about the structural integrity of the tree. I feel like we could play this game with like every one of these topics, but like arborist or no arborist, right? Like do you should you consider giving an arborist a call and having them actually come and inspect a tree in one of these situations, Greg? Absolutely. You should definitely give an arborist a call. Um, and there are certain arborists that have what's are, are track certified, their tree risk assessment qualification, right? And so they're trained to look at these hazard trees. Um, but it's it's really tough for anyone to predict uh, what a tree is going to do when it's got branch attachments like that. It's, it's really tough to know when it's going to break. But there are signs you can certainly see. Sometimes you can physically see uh, a cracking in the stem between those two v-shaped branching attachments and you know it's it's time 
a lot of people sometimes will think, well, maybe I'll cable those two branches or those many of those branches together. And that is a possibility, you know, cabling tree branches together. And certainly for historic or really important trees, I might consider cabling, but it does come with some drawbacks. Certainly you have to make a big hole in the tree to attach the cables, but it also sort of is an admission that there's a problem with this tree. And if then that tree does break and causes damage, then the homeowner may face some some risk of liability, you know, made from their insurance company. Like you knew there was a problem with this tree, but but you decided to cable it. And so um, I would definitely rely on the advice of a good arborist who's looked at hundreds of thousands of these trees and, and can sort of make a prediction about, you know, how structurally um, sound it is and, and what the likelihood that I can live through some windstorms or heavy ice loads, for instance. So I, I think uh, another pretty common topic that, that we hear from folks are, are trees where there are holes in the trunks, right? And so that could be from birds, uh, from from insects, animals, right? Like who various causes. Um, but Emma, when you hear that, I assume you want to know what kind of tree it is. And depending on the type of tree, you might you know, think one way or the other. What are some of the considerations for you when when you hear about holes in a trunk where you might kind of lean one way or the other on whether that's a problem? Mm. Yeah, one thing you didn't mention was that a lot of times big holes in trees are from pruning cuts that were made to large branches and that 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 cut or that branch was just far too large for the tree to be able to seal over that wound before decay organisms started to break down that wood uh, in the cut. And over time, you know, that wood, as that wood decays, you might end up with a large hole in the tree. You see this pretty often on large sugar maples on along the side of the road, maybe even a, a big oak that had a, a large limb taken off at some point. And a lot of times, I don't know that these trees are major causes for concern, um, particularly a lot of these deciduous species like that. Something to be aware of, of course, is when you have a hole in a tree like that, the tree definitely isn't as structurally sound as a, a tree without a large hole, because um, all of all of or a good chunk of the the wood that's on the inside of that tree, that non-living tissue, which provides a lot of structure for that plant, has now decayed away. Um, we might call it heart rot sometimes on, on trees when trees essentially hollow on the inside. Um, from a health perspective for that tree, it might still be pretty healthy because the the living bark, which is just on the the you know outermost uh, section of the tree, essentially, is fine. And so that tree will keep growing despite having this hollow center, but it isn't going to be as strong. So again, this is some this is a place where you'd probably want to have somebody come in and assess the tree to see uh, whether it's it's poses an immediate risk to your property, um, to your to your house, what have you. Uh, but if this is a tree that's away from the house quite a ways, usually not something I'm going to be too worried about. If you're seeing holes that are created by animals, uh, say a, a woodpecker has been drilling a hole in a tree, that's probably an indication that there's some serious decay going on there, or you've got a, a whole trunk or a whole side of a trunk or an entire limb that's completely dead. Because the only time, unless we're talking about yellow-bellied sapsuckers, uh, the only time woodpeckers are drilling into trees is when that tissue is totally dead and it's infested with insects. So at that point, 
it's it's time to probably take the tree down or at least take off some limbs uh, that have completely died. But just a, a hole alone, um, probably not cause for panic, particularly if the tree is away from the house. And um, some of these holes, of course, are great habitat for a lot of wildlife. A lot of birds nest in those holes and trees. Raccoons might take shelter. Um, yeah, so definitely something to be said for them. And they occur in nature, too, of course. Well, and what about those sap suckers? You kind of elevated those as being a case of their own. Why is that? Well, yellow-bellied sapsuckers are a species of woodpecker that actually um, drills into trees for the sap. So they will eat insects as well. Uh, but usually when they're making holes in trees, they're, they're drilling just these very shallow little wells, and they're lapping up the sap that bleeds out of the trunk. So Hence the name sapsucker. Usually sapsucker damage uh, looks worse than it actually is. Uh, most trees can handle it. Uh, and it's once you know what you're looking for, uh, which is rows, horizontal rows of, of little holes on uh, the trunk of a tree, um, you'll know it's a sapsucker and it's probably nothing to worry about. They tend to attack a variety of trees. Oftentimes, fruit trees. They, they tend to love apples and pears, uh, but you can see you can see their damage on on maples and even hemlocks. Sometimes I, I've seen uh, people get really concerned when this is happening to their landscape plants. Right, having this woodpecker come in and drill a bunch of holes in the tree, um, but it's usually usually not all that problematic for the tree. Okay, and and Greg, we we often hear from people who are concerned about borers in their trees, you know, seeing holes and, and thinking that they might be borers. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well as whatever your reaction was. It looked like you were, you were ready to respond to Emma there. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to just remind you all that. Remember we drill holes in tens of thousands of sugar maples every year and they do fine. Right. So trees can tolerate a healthy tree can tolerate having a, a little hole punched in it from time to time. Um, and, but in terms of the borers, um, you know, trees, the fact is that trees die, trees get unhealthy, and there's a lot of native insects, borers, that, um, you know, will get into trees, especially when they're not healthy, right? The trees can give off pheromones when they're not well, and uh, yeah, they will lay larvae in there, and the larvae will eat, you know, wood or decaying wood and, and emerge as adults. That's, that is a, a normal part of a tree's life cycle what is problematic is when we have um, a lot of non-native insects like the emerald ash borer which is of course as the name suggests a borer um, our trees our ash trees aren't used to dealing with that and so the the emerald ash borer is laying larvae in, in perfectly healthy trees and so when we're seeing holes in what would otherwise be perfectly healthy ash trees well then that is cause for concern and you know we will inspect those trees. Those are easy to detect uh, when they're coming out of the, the tree because they have a very distinct D-shaped exit hole because of the shape of the larvae's head. So, you know, if, if you have a sick and dying tree that has holes in it, that's quite natural. If you have a healthy tree that's starting to show uh, hole, bore holes or insect activity, that could be cause for concern. Okay, so it sounds like it's pretty specific to you know, tree species and, you know, context around the overall health of the tree. 
That's right. And a lot of these boar species are very, if not species specific, you know, genera or family specific, you know, so it may be ashes or maples or oaks that uh, these insects target. Another topic, Emma, when people start to notice over time, um, or maybe just from one year to the next, a thinner canopy, you know, they're just kind of le- less leaves, less vigorous kind of growth in, in the, the top of the tree. Um, that that might not be noticeable unless you're paying attention, unless this is a an statement tree in the middle of the yard. But if you do notice a, a thinning canopy, what might that signal to you? Is that a cause for concern, potentially? Usually it is cause for concern, yes. And I often think it's indicative of something going on with the root system of the plant. Um, a lot of times you'll see this on urban trees that have been getting a whole lot of foot traffic over their root systems. Uh, It can happen where there's some salt damage or if there's been construction recently in the area of a tree where some of its root system may have been severed or damaged in some way. When you um, really impair the root system of a tree, uh, you start to reduce its capacity to support all of the branches in its canopy. When you start to see this, uh, particularly on a mature tree where branches seem to be dying out or there aren't as many leaves coming out, unfortunately, there isn't typically a a turning around once that happens. So even if you're doing a lot of watering or you fertilize the tree, usually you don't see a a full comeback. Um, It can be kind of the the beginning of the end uh, and that tree is just on a long, slow decline. It might live for, you know, years more, but it's probably never going to be back to its its full, healthy, robust state. Um, and honestly, that's that's kind of the case with with any um, tree that's that's um, showing signs of de- of decline for any reason. Usually once they start to decline, they just keep going downhill. There really isn't anything you can do to totally turn that around. So unfortunately, if you do have a tree in your landscape that does seem to have a a thinning canopy with lots of branches dying up high uh, or just fewer leaves, you're probably going to be looking at replacing it sooner than later. Are there any diseases that might be causing a thinning canopy? Uh, Because you had kind of talked about root issues and maybe that's a disease, maybe it's not. So what, what might you be concerned about specifically? Potentially. So there are some fungal diseases that can cause issues in the root systems of plants. Um, one is verticillium wilt. Um, you can also see on, on elm trees, I'm, I'm thinking about an American elm that's just down the road from me, uh, that most likely has Dutch elm disease. Um, this is a, a vascular wilt. So essentially, you've, you've got a disease that has infected the vascular system of the plant, usually through the roots, although it could occur through the stem too. Uh, and this fungal pathogen is either killing or, or clogging up the vascular system of that plant. So it can't move waters and sugars the way it should. And, you know, eventually what happens is that you, you'll you see some dieback typically starting in the canopy, maybe on one side, on one branch or so. And this just continues to progress throughout the entire plant. So seeing a branch that's completely wilted and you don't see any... Uh, signs of mechanical injury like you don't you don't see any holes there any cuts or or injuries to the bark that could be a sign that there's there's something going on with the vascular system 
Um, in that case, too, there's not much you can do to to save that plant. I mean, you might keep it alive in the landscape a little bit longer just by trying to keep it as stress-free as possible. So irrigating it, uh, especially during dry periods in the summer. Um, but you're you're probably you're not gonna bring it back entirely. What I would recommend doing for landscape plants is actually submitting us a, a um, you know a, a branch sample of a, an infected branch and maybe also a, a healthy looking branch um, to a, a plant pathology lab, and having a, a plant health specialist take a look at that that branch and determine whether it is a, a vascular wilt disease, and if it is. You'll want to replace that plant with a species that's not susceptible. I guess one reason why it might actually be useful to know whether there's a disease, and if so, what the disease is, is, you know, even if you can't save the tree, that might impact how you think about what to do next, whether to whether you're replacing that tree and what you might be replacing it with. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to have an impact on what you replace it with. If if it's a, a disease issue like that, particularly a vascular disease, you're probably not going to put the exact same tree back in again. So if it was a maple, for example, you would likely want to skip maples. So Greg, something that we hear some summers way more than others, it seems like the, these questions sometimes come in waves is about summer, you know, early defoliation. And like the southwestern part of New Hampshire, I feel like past couple summers, it's like we've gotten a lot of these types of questions associated with uh, with caterpillar damage. The leaves aren't just falling down. I mean, actually, you're seeing, you know, more, more frass than leaves coming off the tree. But then, you know, other times, early defoliation might be where the tree is just shedding those leaves and might not be an insect or, or a caterpillar that might be you know, something else like a disease. So when you hear about early defoliation, kind of meaning the tree is losing its leaves before it should be, what what are your thoughts there? And how might you kind of determine whether there's a problem or whether it's kind of something to shrug off and just hope for a better year next year? Oftentimes it is hoping for a better year next year. And it's again, it's really species specific and, you know, specific to the, the tree species, but also the insect species. So you know, if I visit a, a site and I look at a tree and I see it's being defoliated by a caterpillar, say gypsy moth or um, Lymantria dispar, I think we have a new name for it. We're looking for a new mm-hmm. common name. Um, I tend not to worry about healthy trees. Healthy trees can um, tolerate a defoliation and, and then they can reflush and it may impact their growth for the year. But as long as that's not a repeated defoliation you know, for two, three, or more years in a row, most healthy trees uh, will, they'll be just fine. Um, it's a, if it's defoliation, um, and I think it's disease-related, again, that's very species-specific. Um, if I see, like Emma said, an elm that's got flagging and, and losing uh, leaves on a limb, I, I worry about Dutch elm disease. If it's July and there's an oak that's losing its leaves, well, and now I'm starting to think about oak wilt, and that could be very concerning. And so it really depends on the species. There are certainly some trees that are under stress, maybe in a certain year, and, and they may lose their leaves a little bit earlier than the others. Um, again, not necessarily a great cause for alarm. And there are certain species like ash that will tend to lose its uh, leaves earlier than a lot of the other species anyways. 
So you really have to look at the site. You got to look at the species of tree and you got to look at what the causal agent might be. But typically early defoliation um, is not overly alarming to me. Um, actually, Greg, I'm glad you brought up oaks um, in your neck of the woods, the eastern part of the state. This summer, we got a lot of questions about oaks losing leaves or, or rather losing branches with leaves on them. And we we're seeing, you know, what we were calling a bot canker that, w- that was going around, the, these twig pruning insects, squirrels. I mean, there's all, there, there seemed to be so many possibilities on what might have been going on, but it was a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I sometimes call these uh, sick tree calls, Nate, and uh, it actually can be kind of difficult sometimes to sleuth out exactly what's going on uh, with trees. I certainly noticed that in my yard. I had at the beginning of the season, I had um, some oak uh, leaf roller insects, I believe, which is the first time I'd ever seen those, and we got some calls about that. Um, I observed some squirrels going up into my oaks and actually apparently gnawing out branches and dropping them down. So I think there's a lot of reasons. We had some other, um, you know, fungal issues with oaks this year. I think because of the drought, the trees were a little bit stressed and a little more susceptible to a lot of native pathogens that are always here. And we did get a lot of oak calls. Again, overall, I wasn't very concerned about that. But it can be a little bit um, unsatisfying to homeowners who call, and it can be really tough to figure out what's going on with these trees sometimes. But maybe you can just clarify what what is differentiating for you with oaks between the possibility of an oak wilt versus one of these other things because it sounds like oak wilt's the one that's going to be concerning. That's the one that is yeah, it's very concerning. And I will say that do not panic people. We don't know of oak wilt in New Hampshire yet. We're just keeping an eye out for it. And the the thing to look for with oak wilt um, is that if an oak tree in July is dropping leaves, that's concerning. You know, if it's dropping leaves rapidly like you would see in the autumn and the may the leaves have sort of a, um, they're stained, they have a wet look to them, that could be uh, an issue. And that's a vascular issue like Emma talked about. So the tree's really not getting water up and down or water up and nutrients down. Um, so if you're raking oak leaves in July, that's concerning. And, and I'd want to know about that. And, and other extension foresters would want to know about that. And and the only way to confirm that then is to send it off to a pathology lab. One other thing I picked up on was you you mentioned in the context of something like Dutch elm disease flagging in the in the canopy. Can you kind of define what you're talking about there, and what are some other examples besides Dutch elm that that might be associated with with that that word that that phrase flagging in the canopy? Yeah, I'm going to try to rely on Emma on this one a little bit too, but you know, okay. <laughs> but it, but if I see a but I can answer that partly if I see um you know, what looks to be a relatively healthy canopy, but there is one specific branch or or small number of branches that have turned brown, the leaves have turned brown, they're wilted and they're still sort of hanging on that branch. That's what to me is the definition of flagging, and that's what I'm looking for. So if I see that on a on an elm tree, I instantly become concerned about Dutch elm disease. And, you know, that's an early warning sign to let you know that that tree likely has Dutch elm. And it's your time. If you're going to act, that's the time to act. And, and you have possibly a chance to, to prune off that branch that's showing those symptoms. Right. But um, but you're looking for that sort of unusual um, canopy dieback that there's really no other explanation for. In terms of other species, I, I can't think of any other species right off the top of my head. 
No, the one I think of, Nate, and I, I think I already mentioned this, was verticillium. And that attacks a, a long list of plants, particularly. And verticillium's in the soil everywhere. This is a, a fungal pathogen. Um, but sometimes when trees are already stressed out by some other issue, whether it's salt or compaction or you name it, they can become susceptible to infection. Um, maples, for example, are quite susceptible to, to verticillium wilt. Uh, but if you if you do notice this sort of symptom where you, you just have, and, and typically what happens is it starts with just a, a few branches here and there. It's not the entire tree is all of a sudden wilted. It, it progresses over time. It, it is probably worth taking a sample and, and getting it to a lab for diagnosis. Um, in, in some cases, there might be something you can do to treat um, or at least protect trees that are still healthy on your property. For example, say you have a, a really high-value old uh, elm tree, American elm, that's somehow managed to escape Dutch elm disease, um, and you have another tree go down right next to it. Maybe you look at, at treatment for that remaining tree, knowing that this is going to be a very expensive uh, prospect to do that. Um, but yeah, I typically, you know, it's... If you can if you can afford the the $20 or whatever it is to have a, a plant disease accurately diagnosed by a lab, uh, the better off you're going to be in terms of making management decisions. Kind of going back to to leaf drop off of trees. Uh, some years more than more than others, some trees more than others will sometimes hear about leaf spotting. How how would you respond to that? I would say that typically when I see leaf spotting, it's it's typically a it's typically cosmetic and the the trees can usually tolerate that spawning just fine. I think of tar spot on Norway maple or um, this year on oak, I saw a lot, a lot of uh, tubecchia, which is a leaf spot. And I think, um, you know, the, for the most part, they show up later in the summer and the fall. Uh, not always, but the trees, you know, that leaf has made a lot of leaf has made a lot of food for the tree. And it's really a cosmetic issue. The leaves fall off. And I think, Good sanitation is the key there. Rake up, rake up those leaves and move them offsite away from the tree, where so the fungal spores won't reinfest the tree. And uh, typically, I don't worry much about leaf spots, although we do get quite a number of calls about them. Emma, how about the uh, the kind of crusty stuff that you'll sometimes find on on the trunks and and branches of trees? Uh, we call that lichen. So what, what happens if you're seeing that stuff? A lot of times, people are very concerned um, about lichens. Um, and the other one that I kind of put into that same camp, many times they coexist, are, are mushrooms or, or um, other, other fungi, maybe shelf fungi or, you know, whatever kind of growing, growing on trees. How concerning is that for you? Well, let's start with lichen, uh, because lichen is, is not really a concern at all. I think people often confuse it for a fungus, or they might think there's some mold growing on the tree. Uh, but lichen is actually a really interesting organism uh, that's super ancient. It's kind of part part fungus, uh, part algae. So this is an organism that is actually making its own energy, much like plants with those green algal cells, um, which is why these plants tend to have a, a bluish or a greenish tinge to them. And it's not feeding on the tree in any way. Lichens will actually grow really on any surface where they have access to sun and moisture. So you can get 
of course, lichen growing on trees, um, but it also grows on rocks and it might grow on your, your wooden fence or your vinyl siding, you know, what have you. Uh, it's just using that tree as a good place to grow. I think sometimes people get concerned about lichen because it tends to be that you get more lichen growing on trees that are already kind of stressed out. And I think that's just because there's more sunlight penetrating the branches of those trees because the canopy might be thinner. They might not have quite as much foliage. So if you have a tree that's just completely encrusted in lichen, it's probably stressed out from something else. The lichen is not killing that tree or, or causing its decline. Um, actually, having lichen on a tree is a good sign because lichens only grow where in areas where you have very low air pollution. You'd be hard-pressed to find a bunch of lichen growing on a tree growing in the city. But um, in our more or less uh, pristine landscapes in New Hampshire, uh, where we have good air quality, you're, you should um, see lichen growing out there. Mushrooms on trees are, are kind of a different thing altogether. Um, when you see little shelf fungi uh, growing on a tree, typically, or even crust fu fungi too, that's a sign that there is dead tissue on that tree for some reason or another. The fungi that have or create mushrooms or, or grow mushrooms uh, are tend to be um, wood decay fungi, and they only grow on, on wood that is already dead. They would not grow on a, a live, healthy branch and kill that branch. Uh, it's it's just something that's showing up because there is some injury to that tree already. So you, you'll usually see these on branches that are that are dead or or dying, or you might see them on growing on a wound from where a large pruning cut was made. Um, really, nothing to be done about them outside of maybe removing a dead limb or a, a diseased limb. Uh, I guess if you really wanted to, you could pluck off a mushroom. Um, some some mushrooms that grow on trees are are edible and really delicious, like the chicken of the woods. Of course, um, know what you're doing if you're going to forage mushrooms. But yeah, it, it's the mushrooms not killing the tree. There's there's something else that happened to that tree that that caused decay. And you know maybe this is another time when you have an arborist come in and take a look at that tree and help you determine whether it is still structurally sound. Greg, how about mushrooms growing near a tree? That depends on the species of, of mushroom. Um, hmm. Certainly there are all kinds of mushrooms, you know, in the far soil and soil in general. And some are, um, you know, are feeding on trees and others are not. Others are feeding on, you know, dead organic matter, decaying organic matter in the, the soil. And so then it becomes a matter of can you identify the fungus? And there are certain fungi that are species specific. And if it's growing near the base of a tree, it may very well be the indication of, of some sort of root rot. Um, but again, it, it, to, to see fungi growing near trees is not at all alarming to me unless I'm able to identify the species and I realize, you know, there's amillaria root rot or something and, and, and it could potentially be impacting this tree. But if I see mushrooms around a tree, I'm not concerned at all. Most of them, the mushrooms are probably feeding on dead and dying organic matter. And Greg, kind of sticking with you, uh, something we call a canker, which I guess I would describe as typically kind of a, a lesion on on the 
on the bark, drunk branches, uh, even like small twigs can sometimes have these kind of like discolored lesions. Sometimes they seem a little sunken or depressed in. Um, if, if you see that or, or, or hear, hear that, how, how concerned might you be? For me, typically, I'm a little more concerned if I see cankers on a tree. I think of butternut canker. I think of target cankers that you would see on birches. And that's usually a, a sign that there's a, some sort of fungi inf- or fungus infesting that tree. And the cankers are often, I think, probably the, you know, the, the sign or the symptom that something's going on with those trees. And those cankers, when that portion of that tree dies um, because of that fungi, um, those are no longer conductive parts of the tree, right? They can't move uh, water up and food down. And so often what happens is you get a lot of cankers on a tree, like in butternut or birch. Um, that ends up basically girdling the tree over time. And so I do become more concerned when I see a canker on a tree that there's a, a major issue with the tree. Most of them are what I would call slow killers. They're not going to rapidly kill a tree, but they weaken it over time. They They sort of destroy the conductive material of the tree. Um, and unfortunately, often there's really no cure for a tree that's, that's showing that has cankers. It's it's just a, a matter of time before the tree, you know, succumbs to that fungi or fungus. Emma, another one that we hear pretty often, especially kind of seasonally, is uh, evergreens shedding their needles. Sometimes, sometimes those needles might be yellow or brown. Uh, is that cause for concern for you potentially? Totally depends on the time of year. If a evergreen is losing its needles in the springtime, then I am a little bit concerned potentially uh, because it's probably an indication that, or it could be an indication that there's some sort of um, fungal infection uh, happening within that canopy. Um, You see this a a lot with white pine uh, in New Hampshire where trees seemingly have a, a thin canopy and drop a lot of needles in the spring. Um, that could be the result of, of several different fungi. If, however, you're, you're noticing needles falling off in the fall, that's definitely m- much less concerning because that is, in fact, normal. Despite the, the name evergreen or the, the term evergreen, uh, needled trees do still drop their, their needles eventually. So it, it takes, usually they hold on to them for a couple of years and then they fall off or it depends on the exact species that we're talking about, but they don't stay on there forever. And in terms of the pattern of the needle drop, if the needles are dropping from the interior of a branch, then that is probably totally normal. Um, but if you're seeing needles dropping from the, the ends of branches where that new growth is, that's also a cause for concern. Um, or, or something you might look into more, because that, that could be pathogen-related. But in general, needle drop in the fall is fine, as long as it's happening from the interior, not the exterior of that plant. Greg, how about uh, if you see exposed roots um, ab- above the soil line for a yard tree? Is is that normal cause for concern? Like, why is that even happening? Yeah, it's it's not... It's not abnormal to have uh, roots on the surface. Um, certain species like maples typically will have more roots that are, are near the surface. And remember, most of our trees, they don't have roots that are much deeper than two feet below the surface. Most don't develop a big tap root. So that's why they're susceptible to compaction because the roots are typically very close to the surface. 
Um, and there's, there can be various reasons for that. It could be erosion or compaction. Sometimes there's a restrictive soil layer, um, and you know that retains moisture. And, and roots need oxygen to live. And so if there's no oxygen um, below the surface, then their, their roots are going to be coming up towards the surface. And that might be why you're seeing that. So it could be a compaction issue. It could be a site issue. Um, a few surface roots are normal and not a concern. Um, lots and lots of roots on the surface is concerning and that tells me there's something going on with that site that's not really appropriate for that tree or, or the tree's not well suited to the site conditions there doesn't sound like something you could do a whole lot about though there's probably a not a lot you can do about that um you know if you have just a few surface roots you could you know put an inch or two of soil perhaps over them and maybe put a little grass on there you certainly don't want to bury them very deeply because those roots are there because they need oxygen um you could maybe prune a root or two that's at the surface if it's a problem. But generally the tree's telling you that there's some site condition there and, and my roots just can't go any deeper than they are. It can really bother people though, especially if it's in a lawn setting and you're you're concerned, you know, you're you're on your riding mower and you don't wanna you don't want to face plant on your riding mower you know, tripping over a root. Absolutely. And it's also concerning for the tree as you mow over them and you're you're mowing the roots those are making you know wounds where decay can then enter the roots and up to the stem. So it's not good for the tree to be mowing over the roots either. That could be a good time to put in a ground cover instead underneath the tree so you don't have to mow that area. Emma, what about if you're seeing a lot of what we call suckers coming out from, from the base of a tree? Some trees are more prone to that than others, but usually that's also a sign of stress of some sort could be with the uh, the root system of the plant, could be something going on up higher in the canopy. Something is triggering buds to break lower on that stem um, that are, I guess, the, the tree's way of assuring that it's not going to die entirely, that's trying to produce some new stems or some new growth. It's really common on things like crab apples. Uh, and it can also, I should say too, it can also happen when trees are planted too deeply. I think that's often a reason why you see it on ornamentals like crab apples because they were planted too, too deep, uh, which we already talked about uh, a little while ago. What you can do there, um, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint, is is just prune those off. Uh, or if you note that the the main trunk of the tree is in fact in decline, you might leave one of those suckers and have it grow into the new tree this only works on ornamentals if you know that that sprout is coming from above a graft and many times that those sprouts are actually coming from the root stock of that plant so when you graft you take two different parts of a plant together a top piece a scion and a root stock the bottom piece and you attach them together in ornamentals, a lot of times where you get those sprouts is actually from the rootstock. So it, the resulting tree is not going to look like what you planted. You can also get what are called water sprouts in the canopy too, or sometimes people call them suckers. I usually call suckers growth that's coming from the base of the trunk or from the roots. Water sprouts as upright growth that's occurring in the canopy. And again, some trees are just more susceptible to or are more prone to growing water sprouts. Apples, yet again, or crab apples are very prone uh, to this sort of strong, vigorous, upright growth uh, in the canopy. 
Uh, but usually what happens when you when you get an excessive number of these, it's because the tree was damaged from a storm. So there's some sort of significant injury to the canopy in that way or from excessive pruning. All right. I got one more for each of you and then we'll get you out of here. So, uh, Greg, how about come late winter, you know, early spring, you notice some significant uh, what looks like storm damage, uh, like Emma just brought up uh, to a tree, you know, from snow, ice, wind, what have you. Um, you're looking at that. What in what situations are you going to be really concerned for that tree? And in what situations are you going to feel pretty optimistic that tree is going to heal up just fine? Yeah, it's really a matter of the extent of damage. Certainly, again, if we go back to when the tree was young and it was pruned well and it's it's got a strong architecture and, and strong limbs, it's going to be able to weather those storms a little bit better. But if it is damaged in a storm, say, um, you know, certainly you have to look at, you know, what's broken. And if, if it's more than 50% of the crown, then I really have very little hope that the tree is going to recover. And, and biologically, it may live for many years, as we talked about, but it's sort of aesthetically, it's it's kind of lost that appeal. So I look at the extent of damage, a few minor limbs broken, um, no problem. Just go ahead and prune those off. Um, it's important maybe to, to do nice clean pruning cuts. If you have, you know, limbs that break and they have ragged sort of edges and not a smooth cut, um, those don't heal or I should say seal quite as well. Um, so you want to do a nice clean pruning cut. Um, otherwise they end up they act like infection courts where fungi and insects are attracted to. So it's, you know, minor damage, 10%, 20% crown damage typically can be pruned out. Get above that, especially over 50%, like we'll see in ice storms and things, then it's probably time to re remove and replace the tree. All right, Emma, one that we get some springs more than others. When flowering trees like dogwoods or cherries or, you know, what, whatever it is, if you see no blooms at all or, you know, just diminished blooms on those uh, flowering ornamentals. Uh, w what are your thoughts there typically? I would I would probably guess that it's something uh, weather climate related uh, when you have reduced bloom on a tree in the spring uh, in particular. With plants that aren't native to New Hampshire, and this is a lot of those flowering trees that we have in the landscape, they might not perfect be perfectly adapted to our winter conditions. And a lot of times what happens uh, is that these trees start to wake up, if you will, or will start to grow in the spring before winter is really over. And so they've basically evolved uh, to have a, a shorter winter period. And so they will come out of dormancy earlier uh, than they should in our climate. And once they come out of that dormant period and start to grow, once their, their buds start to expand and their, their flower buds uh, start start to expand or, or maybe open a little bit, they're really susceptible to cold temperatures. So if we uh, get a late freeze um, or just have extended cold in the spring um, after they've started to break that dormant period, then a lot of times you just lose the flower buds entirely. Um, th this happens a lot in stone fruits, for example. Why, why some years we, we don't have any peaches in New Hampshire because we, we get that late freeze. This is not something that you would typically see on a native plant, though. So we have a number of native cherries. 
you don't see that on on those plants because uh, they have evolved to have a long enough dormant period. Um, they will stay dormant, or they it takes more cold in order for them to break their dormancy. So you just don't see it. Um, but if you have something in your landscape that's native to Europe or to Asia, it's more likely that you're going to lose that bloom in the spring. Um, particularly if you're pushing the envelope in terms of zone hardiness. So if you live in zone, let's say five, and you're you're trying to push it with a, a plant that's really happier in zone six, it's going to be more likely that you lose your bloom. So Greg, um, you're you're a, a county forester. You're also an arborist for homeowners. When should they consider hiring an arborist and, you know, how, how might they, they find a, a qualified arborist? When you decide um, a tree needs to be pruned or a tree needs to be removed or you want to plant a new tree, that's a time to, to find an arborist. And uh, there are a lot of arborists, great arborists in New Hampshire. Um, there are two certifying organizations. We don't license arborists in the state like we might license a forester, for instance, or a surveyor or an engineer, as for instance, but... There's the New Hampshire Arborists Association, and they do maintain a list of certified arborists. And then the International Society of Arboriculture, um, they also maintain a list of certified arborists that you can search and find one that's that's close to you in the state. And then sometimes, too, we have folks that have other issues with trees where they need a consultant, and they may have a legal issue with the tree, maybe a dispute with a property abutter. And, and then there are consulting arborists, and you can find the Association of Consulting Arborists online and and they're more able to help with, you know, diagnosing pest issues and helping with legal issues. Um, and so there's really a variety of professionals in the state, um, and they're easy to find online. Thanks, Greg. We uh, really appreciate your time today. This is this has been great. Yeah, thank you guys both. I hope you find something usable from this. I think just about everyone will. Now that Greg's left the studio, what's your featured plant for this episode, Emma? The featured plant this episode is one of the first trees I recommend when someone's looking for a tree with excellent drought tolerance. It's white oak, Quercus alba. White oak is native to New Hampshire, and it typically grows on dry upland slopes and ledges, as well as lowland valleys and ravines. Though it will grow much faster in rich, moist, acidic, well-drained loams in full sun, white oak will also perform well in dry or shallow and rocky soils. White oak is a good choice for larger landscapes because it is a tree that can grow 50 to 80 feet tall and wide. Its only drawback is that it's slow growing, though it can live for hundreds of years. Perhaps most importantly though, white oak is an important food source for many dozens of native insects, birds, and mammals. If you're interested in ecological landscaping, you have to have at least one white oak on your property. I'm really glad you featured white oak, Emma. It's an amazing and unheralded tree. Some people look at as a nuisance to clean up after without necessarily thinking about what important trees they really are. I also understand you have a closing tip for this episode. Having a tree taken down on your property? Make sure you ask the arborist to leave the wood chips behind. Fresh wood chips whether from soft or hardwood trees, are incredibly useful as mulch. I've had great success using them to mulch around trees and shrubs in my own landscape, or they can be used to mulch pathways through flower or vegetable beds. As wood chips are breaking down, they can temporarily tie up nitrogen, but this is seldom an issue around woody plants. 
If for some reason you're using wood chips to mulch perennials and are really concerned about nutrient deficiency, simply applying some slow-release nitrogen fertilizer at the proper rate around plants will solve this issue. Make sure you put those wood chips to work. I love that you featured wood chips. I've been putting them to work myself after having a couple arborists drop off chips from other jobs at my home. I love using them not only as mulch like you described, but also for pathways and for smothering weeds as site preparation for creating new gardens. Well, we're at the end of this two-part episode on landscape trees. I want to again thank Greg Jordan for coming on with us. In the show notes, I'll include a link to where you can contact your county forester if you live in New Hampshire. And of course, thanks to Emma as always. And I want to also share some gratitude with our executive producer, Dave Kellum, who truly makes us sound better than we do in real life. Obviously, I'm in a thankful mood coming off a great Thanksgiving with family and friends, and I hope you had a great Thanksgiving too. Until next time, go ahead and scout your trees for the issues we talked about today and sharpen those pruners and loppers for late winter pruning, Granite State Gardeners. We'll talk with you again soon. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.